0: Engaging Leader Episode 134, Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual, featuring David Burkus. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Great leaders don't innovate products, they innovate the factory. Throughout most of the 20th century, Industrial age leaders like Henry Ford focused on reinventing the factory, finding the best way to design the organization around the product. Now today, much of the world has moved from the factory floor to the factory of mines. The best leaders have already started reinventing the factory once more. In his latest book, Under New Management, David Burkus provides research showing that many decades old management practices have now become counterproductive. He says that in their place, great leaders are finding new ways to enhance productivity and engagement. And today we'll talk about some of those ideas from the book. David Burkus is a best selling author, an award winning podcaster, and a management prof- professor. In 2015, he was named one of the emerging thought leaders most likely to shape the future of business by Thinkers 50 the world's premier ranking of management thinkers. David Berkus, welcome back to Engaging Leader. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. David, the premise of under new management is great leaders don't innovate products, they innovate the factory. What does that mean?
1: It means great leaders don't innovate the product, they innovate the factory. No, in, you're kidding. You know, I, so I wrote the, I wrote this book, The Myths of Creativity. And as I'm running around and speaking about it and sharing the messages in it, I realized that almost everybody, when they're talking about innovation, when they're talking about creativity, it always comes down to ideas for products. You know, everybody want to talk wants to talk about how the iPhone is amazing and how Uber was a great business model and all of this stuff. And nobody wanna talk wants to talk about what sort of leads to those great things, which is attracting and retaining really talented people who can innovate the product, right? And the leaders of most of these companies, I mean, the dirty little secret is that Steve Jobs had very little to do with most of the products that he that everybody goes, then Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. No, he didn't. <laughs> or then he invented the iPod. No, that was Tony Fidel and Johnny Ive. Like. What, what Jobs did was create an environment where these people could thrive, right? And that's, that's essentially what I mean. And, and throughout all of history, this has been true, right? The, the single biggest thing that led to a revolution in the United States and huge growth in the economy of most of the industrialized world was Frederick Taylor and principles of scientific management. He figured out how to make a product-making factory, a physical factory, super efficient, right? So he figured out how to innovate the factory in a way that could make it hugely efficient. And that was amazing for a really long time. And then, as Peter Drucker pointed out, somewhere in the 1950s, 1960s, we, we started switching from a physical factory to an idea factory or, an, or a decision factory. We switched from industrial work to knowledge work. But most of the ideas around management, most of the ideas around how to run that decision factory are based off of Frederick Taylor's work and how to run a physical factory. And that's an assumption that we make that is hugely dangerous and has a lot of negative effects. And so that was kind of my goal was to point this out, that, that the great leaders don't just focus on, hey, how do, we have this amazing product and we're going to hit this market. They don't just innovate products. In fact, they leave their people to innovate the products. They focus on innovating the factory, factory now being a metaphor for company or environment or, or what have you. But they focus on making it possible for the people and particularly the brains of the people who are coming up with all these great ideas. They focus on making the factory optimized for idea generation and execution, not just for optimizing the, the brute labor of, of physical factories.
0: In, in this book, it's a you've taken a provocative look at several widely accepted notions of business management, and you're suggesting new ideas that take their place. How did you determine which ideas to focus on in this book?
1: Uh, whichever one seemed really crazy. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, in all seriousness, so, so no idea, and you know, I talked about this in the midst of creativity that all ideas are combinations of preexisting ideas. I didn't come up with a single idea that's in this book, right? What I did was I noticed. And I noticed it from two unique perspectives. The first was just being interested. So a story would hit the Business Insider or Fortune or Fast Company about this crazy company that pays people to quit, right? And I would think, wow, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. Who in the world would ever do that? But then you know, I was trained as an organizational psychologist. Then my mentality goes, well, wait a minute. There's this whole thing called sunk cost and escalation of commitment. And the longer we're at a company, the more likely we're to stay, not because we're happy, but because we've just invested so much in it. So the idea of offering someone money to leave helps lower sunk costs. So I'm thinking about it from these two levels of one, like this is crazy and and interesting to talk about, which is usually what the news article is about. But then I'm also thinking about it from the social psychology, the social science behind it all. And I realize that kind of nobody's writing about that part. So that was really my goal was to take these ideas that, you know, every one of them is being used at several different companies for a variety of industries, a variety of sizes, et cetera, and just pair those ideas with the social science that proves these people aren't crazy. These things are counterintuitive, but they work and they work because we've moved from a physical factory to an idea factory, which means that, so it used to be when you designed a factory, the center of the the center of decision the building block on which every decision about the factory was structured was the product we need to make the product most efficiently well if the product develops from behind from inside the two ears of your people then people replace product as the single thing we have to consider every single time when we make an organizational decision and these companies are doing that they're not assuming that the old way to run a company which was based off of product first and make all of your organizational decisions around product they're not assuming that they're assuming people first And so what do we need to do to do that? And it looks very, very different. But they unknowingly further align themselves with decades of social science. So that was really my goal was just to combine these things that seem counterintuitive with the social science that proves that they're right and tell that story together, which I hadn't seen done until now. So again, I didn't do the social science research. Some of the studies, man, I wish I did. They're amazing. And I didn't come up with these ideas. I wish I did. They're amazing. But hopefully what I can do is provide people, here is the justification for why you should probably try this in your organization. So the next time you see that story, you don't just think, oh, man, that's awesome. I wish we did that in my company. You have facts and data and case studies to go, hey, we should do this. Let's innovate this factory.
0: Now, I have to admit, for some of the ideas in the book, I was intrigued and maybe want to dip my toe in the water. But not so fully convinced that I should jump right in. And, and I'm wondering if you felt the same, that there's some of the ideas seem very proven by very rigorous evidence and others are maybe still in the pilot testing or experimental stage. Well, I
1: think you know, one of the things I tried to do with the structure, this is, this is me being geeky writer talking about the craft. One of the things I tried to do with the structure of most chapters, every, every chapter except the intro and the concluding chapters are structured around the idea. Right. And I tried to lead with usually the, the most crazy sounding version of it. Right. Zappos pays people to quit right after they got hired. Right. That's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> you just went through training. You've only been here two weeks, and we're gonna offer you to quit. Right. And then presenting the, the science behind why this is actually a really good idea. Everything I just said about escalation of commitment. And and then the other thing, by the way, as a point, might as well talk about pay people to quit. Is that people who don't take the offer then leverage confirmation bias, which is another socially science research insight that once we make a decision, we selectively filter in or filter out information that confirms we made the right decision. So it actually pays off even better when people don't take the offer because you didn't have to pay them, and now they're more engaged because they're actively looking for reasons why staying was the right decision.
0: Anyway, that's a good point.
1: After presenting that science, I, I tried in every chapter to present three or four other companies that do a little like different twist on it. Maybe they, instead of doing it like, so for example, when, when Amazon bought Zappos, they integrated in pay people to quit, but they don't do it at primary training. They do it after the annual review. So in essence, they say, here's your annual review. Now give us an annual review. If we're awful, you should leave and here's some money to leave. And so I thought that was really cool. And then other companies play around with the number or how often it's offered or those type of things. And, and the goal with that was to basically say, you don't have to look at the chapter headline of the, that chapter and implement that idea exactly. Because different companies are different. Industries are different. Sectors are different. Sizes of companies differ. And so the way that you implement it is going to be different. And so I, I find myself in most of the chapters either advocating for the big crazy idea or advocating for one of those little tweaks, right? In the, in the case of pay to quit, I actually like the idea better of offering it once a year around the time of the annual review. I mean, truthfully, I would probably do them both. So you've gone through primary training and we're going to offer you to invite you to be successful somewhere else if there isn't a fit. But then I don't want that to be the only offer. I want,
0: I kind of want it to be continuous. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's talk about one of the ideas that is sure to be pretty controversial, and that is making salaries transparent. It yeah. It seems like uh, really risky in, in certain cultures. Well, I would say it's
1: incredibly risky if your salaries are unfair. Um, I would definitely agree with that. and and, you know, a few months ago, I gave a TEDx talk on let's why do we keep salaries secret? This is ridiculous. And I've got a lot of different mixed feedback and and the consensus view that I agree with, most people who don't like the idea don't like the idea because salaries are crazy and out of whack. and if everybody found that out, there would be chaos. You're right. But the solution isn't to keep salaries secret. The solution is to make salaries fair, right mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I advocate for transparency is, is sunlight is an incredible disinfectant. It's impossible to be unintentionally discriminatory or to just pay two, two equally qualified people who are bringing the same amount of value different things because you negotiated better with one six years ago when they got hired. It's impossible to let those kind of inequities exist in a, in an area of transparency. And so- I really believe that's, that's the primary moral justification for it. It turns out, though, and, and most of the companies that went to transparency did it for that reason, but it turns out there's a lot of research behind there, – there are lots of different studies, both in the lab and externally, that when people know how they're being paid, why they're being paid that number, how it compares to their peers, and how to move up in the pay scale, they're more likely to work hard to engage with the, the process to increase their performance and try and move up that pay scale. When they don't, when it's clueless, when people don't know how their pay compares to their peers, they're actually more likely, even if they're paid at a fair market rate, to assume that they're underpaid and be disengaged. So it's not only a good deal for the employee because they don't have to worry about being discriminated against or underpaid or anything like that. It's a great deal for the company too, because a simple act of transparency leverages all of that psychology that brings more motivated and engaged employees. One of the other things I wasn't expecting, um, by the way, and it's worth saying, is I was not expecting to find out when I started researching this chapter that it turns out that in the U.S. at least, the law actually protects employees' rights to discuss pay. I assumed that companies that had pay prohibition things had a good reason for it, et cetera. turns out most of them, and there, there are exceptions, I want to emphasize I'm, I'm a business professor, not a law professor, so I don't, I don't want anybody <laughs> to think I'm giving them legal advice, but it turns out that in most cases, the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, 1935, protects an employee's right to talk about pay. So most of the companies that say, oh, we discourage it, we prohibit it, we've fired people for talking about pay, they're actually, they might even be in violation of the law, mm-hmm. not only in violation of the research that says transparency adds motivation.
0: What about the research that, at least I've heard it qu- quoted in the past, and maybe it's no longer true, that says that uh, people, everybody thinks that they are above average. That they, their performance is above average,
1: <laughs> the Lake Wobegon effect, right? Right. Yeah. Right. yeah.
0: So you uh, know where I'm going with this. If you put, if you make everybody's salary transparent, and uh, and you're paying Susie higher than Bill because f- to you, to you as the company, B- Susie's worth it, uh, but Bill says, you know, I'm I'm above average too. Why don't I get paid the same as Susie? You have a wonderful
1: teachable moment in front of you to tell Bill why he's not <laughs> worth as much. No, in all seriousness, one of the companies—this um, was a surprise to me when I did the research, but we all, most of us, have probably shopped at or or wish we could shop at because we wish one was near our house, a store that has fully transparent salaries. Whole Foods Market, the tens of thousands of employees of Whole Foods Market can look up each other's pay, and it, and it started— because of, because of two things. The founder, John Mackey, first was tired of everybody saying, hey, you're overpaid, you're the CEO. So he said, you know what? Here's what I get paid. Here's what everybody else gets paid, right? So now you can see I'm not 300 times the, the average employee CEO salary like a lot of these companies, you know? The other thing that happened is he noticed after that He could have very transparent and honest conversations when they said, Hey, you know, Susie makes this much. Why don't I make that much? And he would basically answer back and go, here are the four or five things that Susie does that bring value that you don't see that I see. You want to go do those things? I will gladly raise your salary. Right. So you have this, it's an uncomfortable conversation, but in a transparency, or excuse me, in a secrecy situation, you can't even have that conversation. You just have to have Bill, which by the way, Bill's probably pretty savvy. He probably already knows Sue gets paid more than him. <laughs> he's just not able to prove it because he's not allowed to know. Right. And so he's not allowed to even have the conversation that says, How do I make as much as Susie? So you're right. There will be some people that are, that are disappointed because they thought they were better than themselves. But there's a benefit there in my opinion too, which is you can prove to them that, you know what, you're, you're not. And so here's what you need to do to do that. And then I'm no, uh, you know, I'm not a Pollyanna. Some people won't be able to handle that. And so, you know, in a case of whole foods or some all or buffer, these companies that do transparency, you, you invite that person to be successful elsewhere. You know, and, and I don't think every company um, – I, I wish they would, but I don't think every company is going to go to transparency. So there's a lot of places for people who are not that. But what I find is that the, the really – the high-level talent, the, the A players, if you will, to use that term, they usually thrive in these companies. And what I think is most interesting is that um, A players who are women or minority or any other protected class tend to gravitate to these places. Because they know that their effort is going to be rewarded fairly, there's no nothing in the back of their mind about this. So it's it I was not expecting it to make for a better workplace for both the employee and the organization, but it really does after some initial uncomfort of revealing the salary, as you point out. But it really does.
0: So in another risk, I guess, in the in the chapter in the book, as well as in your TEDx talk, you mentioned that one of the reasons why a company might stay with secrecy is it is it saves it tends to hold salaries down on average that you're you're likely to your average that you're paying out is likely to be less than if you were being above board with everybody
1: so um, I so I have to be careful here because I had
0: I had seven minutes
1: in the case of the TEDx talk so I had to really <laughs> gloss over this concept of information asymmetry and, and yes, so in general, information asymmetry is a situation where one party in a negotiation has way more information than the other party. And so in a corporate scenario, when you're negotiating initial hiring or raise or promotion type discussions, the employer has information, has the benefit of information asymmetry. But the research shows it's not that information asymmetry holds parties down, although it does that. What happens is that information asymmetry prevents a market from, uh, from acting efficiently, Right, So because one party has more information, they can take advantage of that. And when they do, the market gets sort of messed up. And so in 2001, actually, there were three economists who essentially did a bunch of work on how to resolve information asymmetry. And they had a bunch of different answers. And each answer sort of boiled down to allow the other party to have more information, make things more transparent. So it's, it's not a question of artificially lowering salaries. Although in some cases, like more likely what will happen if you go transparent is that – there are a couple highly paid people because they're good at negotiating, and then there's some equally qualified, equally performing people who are paid less because they're bad at negotiating. And unless the job requires the skill of negotiating, that's an irrelevant difference. And so those differences will smooth out, right? And, and But really what will probably happen in the act of smoothing that out is they'll meet somewhere in the middle not that this person will get a raise to that person's level that's that's what you should do in the in the immediate to make it fair but over time because the market is acting more efficiently it's really just a matter of that the, the average wage will sort of go to where the market demand is instead of people being on either side of it the way that they are now
0: so in theory it it wouldn't cost the money more in the long run in, in theory. Yeah. So, and this, this is
1: essentially what these economists sort of argue. So yeah. I definitely think there's a worry that, oh, if we do that, then, then it's going to cost more and then that's going to raise prices. And that was actually a really funny comment I got back from, from the TEDx talk was from a, a viewer that basically said like, well, doesn't that just hurt the consumer because if we raise everybody's wages and, and I had to write back, I, I never advocated for raising everybody's wages. I mean, that'd be great. It'd be awesome. And if your company can afford it, great, <laughs> but I never advocated for that. What I want is for the market for talent to function more efficiently.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and then theoretically, if it makes for a more uh, high-performing company, it, it'll, it would pay for itself anyway.
1: Right, absolutely. If, if employees are more engaged, it doesn't matter if you're paying them more, they're performing better. So it all works out.
0: Well, let's talk about another idea that you put forth that on the surface sounds like it would cost more money to do, and that is to lose the standard vacation policy. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about that.
1: So th- this comes from – this is actually – this was the example that birthed the idea from the book was I read a lot of things about Netflix and the famous move to unlimited vacation policy, among other actual um, people operations moves that they did. But they, they moved to unlimited vacation policy, and, and the founder, Reed Hastings, along with Patty McCord, who was their former HR person – created this slide deck that explained a bunch of different things about their culture. But the, the internet basically focused in on the, cause I say internet, like it's a, like it's a one person, the people <laughs> on the internet, sorry, let me be grammatically correct here. Everyone on the internet who read it focused in on these couple of slides about unlimited vacation. Cause that seemed like a crazy idea. And then that then birthed a debate about, oh, is this fair? Is this not fair? Because sometimes in an unlimited vacation condition, you could people would be taking less salary because they're worried, or excuse me, less vacation days because they're worried about looking like a slacker. And and Netflix actually did a great job to be sort of overly showy among management that we're taking a lot of vacation, we're getting a lot of rest, et cetera, so that people would be encouraged to take a lot of vacation. But the biggest thing is when you look at the rationale for why they went to unlimited vacation, it's not actually about days taken, days not taken. And there's a couple different reports that show that, on average, people take about the same amount of vacation as they did when it was spelled out how much they should take, right? What happened was that employees were coming to Reed Hastings and saying, you don't track when we're here. You don't make us come on days that we work from 8 to 5. You let us work whenever we want, for the most part, wherever we want. Why do you need to know the 20 days a year when we're not going to be working that day? Why do you need to track that? And he basically said, you're right. We, I, we don't need to, right? And so in that act, essentially what he did was he had employees coming to him and, and saying, you trust us in this area, but you don't trust us in this area. Why not? And he said, you know what? I have no good reason for that. I really do trust you in that area. And so we're moving to this. We're going to ditch the standard vacation policy. We're going to go to unlimited vacation because I trust you. And there's a lot of research going back for several decades about trust and reciprocity, and the idea that if you demonstrate trust, if if I demonstrate trust to you, Jesse, you're more likely to demonstrate it back to me. And so Hastings and, and McCord and the leaders of Netflix were essentially saying to their employees, "We trust you. We're we're demonstrating that we trust you, and we trust that you're gonna gonna return that." And they did it. It was fantastic. And then one of the things that gets glossed over in the history of Netflix and Unlimited Vacation is. That in addition to the unlimited vacation policy, they, they, after trust had such huge benefits, they switched and they implemented an expense report policy that it's five words long. Act in Netflix's best interest, meaning we trust you to do what you need to do to make your business trip successful and that you'll act in our best interest, that you won't go stay at the Four Seasons, that you won't book first class for a 90-minute long flight, et cetera. And they have to take care of one or two people who abuse that policy. But for the most part, demonstrating trust yields trustworthy behavior. And that's really what it's all about. And so there's, there's a lot of different companies that play, play along with this and different ways to give people unlimited vacation or other things that demonstrate trust. But that's sort of the interesting little secret about losing the standard vacation policy is it's not about the number of vacation days people take at all. It's about the amount of trust a company is showing in their employees and giving employees the chance to show it back.
0: Yeah, it's sort of a dark side story. Uh, it was interesting what what you shared about the Tribune Company. Yeah, and how they sort of tried to go to a vacation, uh, unlimited vacation policy, but they did it in a non trustworthy manner, and it backfired.
1: Yeah, and the, and and the Chicago Tribune Company is, is essentially held up as, see, these don't work because they tried it and it didn't work. <laughs> And when you dig into the fine print, you understand entirely why it didn't work. Essentially, what was happening was that in, in that Chicago Tribune Company had sort of a PTO system. So you earned a certain number of vacation days, and then at the end of the year, if you didn't, or or when you retired because you could roll some of them over, but when you left the company or when the year rolled over, you were and you didn't take those days. You were paid extra. So whatever you had earned, it wasn't use them or lose them vacation days. It was you were paid extra. And when they flipped to unlimited vacation, they said, you you will have unlimited vacation. You will have it after you spend all of the paid time off in your bank account, <laughs> right? Which is basically saying like, yes, you have unlimited vacation, but first you need to give up your obligation that you are holding a us to pay you for any of that money. So, I mean, if they had said, like, we're going to go to unlimited vacation because we trust you. And when we flip that switch, we're going to pay out everybody's paid time off. That demonstrates trust. But the employees basically saw it for the accounting trick that it was, mm-hmm. you know, disguised <laughs> as copying Netflix, but it was really trying to steal money from employees. And they, and within a, within a week or so, before, the, before it was even implemented, in the time between when it was announced and when it was implemented, they backpedaled on it because the employees sort of read the fine print, saw that it was untrustworthy behavior, and scolded them for it. And the sad thing is they went back to the way the old system was, which obviously didn't work, right? <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't have wanted to change it. And because they did it in such a poor manner, it sort of soured everybody on the idea to make any progress in this area. So now they're stuck where they are, you know which is a tragedy, really.
0: Yeah, it is sad. Well, one question that comes up is the idea of unlimited vacations or just a no, not, no vacation policy, is that, does that only work with knowledge workers or is it an idea that has merit among even non-exempt employees, hourly employees?
1: So I have seen it work with hourly employees. Um, I, I, don't, I want to be careful not to call this knowledge work because it's definitely knowledge work. But in the book, in Under Management, I talk about a hospital that actually implemented under new management with their nurses who are who are generally hourly employees, right? It's a weird thing, actually, a lot of people don't know is that a lot of nurses and even a lot of doctors, my wife's an ER doctor and she's technically an hourly employee. Like she has an obligation to fill a certain number of hours, but she's paid by the hour, not a salary. And in that scenario, they moved to this sort of, we're eliminating out PTO, you know, and we're, we're giving you money for it. And then we're moving to unlimited vacation. And they were, the hospital to me is an, is a perfect example of, a business that is a knowledge work environment that still has the complexity that required something like a vacation policy. So the, the whole reason for a you get a certain number of days off type of vacation policy is when you were running a factory, you had to you had to guarantee that enough people were there to run the factory. So you couldn't let everybody take vacation all at once and you couldn't let them take too many days or you'd have days where you couldn't get anything done and a hospital is that exact same scenario if you don't have doctors and nurses in the hospital you you've got a really crappy hotel that's all you have right and so this, we we think that this wouldn't work because you've got to manage the same thing. But what happened was the hospital demonstrated trust in employees by giving them this policy. And they responded trustworthy and collaboratively by working together to make sure. Okay, we all get them on them in vacation, but collaboratively we're going to make sure shifts are covered. We're going to reward them, and it was a huge benefit not just to the um, the hospital from the standpoint of individual engaged employees, but really collaboration really went up before switching to the policy it nurses would assume that you know they were basically being hurt when somebody took time off that they had to cover for and now they're doing it collaboratively and they get that they're all sort of acting in each other's best interest
0: all right david i'm going to turn the tables on you you on your podcast radio free leader you always ask uh, your guests a set of five questions i want to ask uh, one of the questions that you always ask your guests and what that is what do you believe is true that no one else does
1: Not necessarily that no one else does, but that a lot of other people do. I mean, well, maybe no one else does. Who knows? (laughs) If if, if that's the case, I'm probably crazy. (laughs) And you better ask this of other guests on the show, by the way, because I love this question. It is a great question. I I occupy this really weird space. It, It seems like, you know, that everybody is either really, really emphasizing the role of experience and understanding the world or really, really emphasizing the role of Science and scientific models in the world. And so you have this back and forth between what do you do? Do you, do you go with your gut? Do you use your experience, et cetera? Or do you do evidence-based leadership, evidence-based management, whatever? And I'm kind of like, yeah, whatever you want to do. I think it comes from, and that's not really true. I, be, I believe strongly in the role of scientific evidence and social science in proving what is sort of good leadership. But it's interesting because I have spent the past 10 years or so observing my wife becoming and now acting as a physician. And medicine is this wonderful example of medicine as art and science. And I've started to think the same thing about leadership. I think the absolute best leaders study the social science, know the models of how to lead in and out, but also know the art of when to use which model. There's an assumption, and usually the assumption is made by the people advocating for their model of leadership, that it'll cover all scenarios. And I don't think that's true. And so I think the role that experience plays is really important in helping you pick which evidence-based model to use. But I believe that leadership is a lot like medicine. It is both an art and a science. And, and I didn't always believe this. I, I mean, When I started grad school, I was very much like, no, all evidence-based management, there's, I don't care about your experience, you're a sample size of one, etc. cetera. <laughs> But I really think there is something, until we figure out everything, which maybe 300 years from now, social science will have gotten to the point where we know exactly this perfect model of leadership, but we're not there yet. Every model is wrong in some capacity and every model is useful. And the role, the art of leadership is figuring out which scientific model to use. It's a lot. Leadership is a lot like
0: medicine. So that's, that's really fascinating. W- would you, I guess, call that intuition, the individual leader's intuition as to what model to apply in a given situation yeah
1: insofar as we define intuition as using the benefit of your past experience or the past experience of someone else that you learned from to identify a scenario and then identify an appropriate action. You know, sometimes we we say intuition is going with your gut. Well, if your right. gut doesn't have any past experience in the issue, it's irrelevant, right? But, you know, there's there's a lot of examples of people who have been in an industry for a really long time and can recognize patterns and not even know that they're recognizing patterns. And so if we use that as our definition of intuition, absolutely. In the same way to go back to So my wife, you know, she works in an ER and a patient comes in and a patient has a standard set of complaints or symptoms, et cetera. And she's running through that list and running through her past history of people with similar complaints and identifying two or three different models, i.e. disease states that it could be. And then goes into testing and trying to figure out sort of which one it is. And I think that's intuition to me. If we define it as that, then absolutely. But intuition is not just blind gut feeling. This is what I think we should do. So we're going to do it.
0: Yeah, agreed. Well, the book again is Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual. Our guest has been David Burkus. David, how can people get their hands on this book and find out more about you and the work that you're doing?
1: So I have, uh, I have a really... Unique last name Burkus B U R K U S. I don't I actually know of of a Nate Burkus, and it's spelled differently. So, if you, if you go to Mister Google and you type in David Burkus, you'll find me. Uh, of course, my <laughs> preference is that you go to Amazon and type in David Burkus, and <laughs> you'll still find me. But no, in all, in all seriousness, um, especially if you're listening and you're kind of like, oh, that's a little interesting, but I'm not entirely sure. DavidBurkus.com would be the best place to go. Type that in Google if you forget, and you'll find it. It'll autocorrect to it because there's a lot of resources that are excerpted from the book that'll kind of help you understand a bit more about it. So if you're on the fence, you know there's a lot of ton, ton of resources there. They're totally free. I won't make you pay for, for worksheets and all that sort of stuff, but they're there. They're there to help. So let me know how I can help on davidbergus.com and we'll get it done.
0: Fantastic. And tell us about your, your podcast as well.
1: So Radio Free Leaders is my um, podcast. It actually used to have a, a, a different name. There's a wonderful story about trademark infringement, which reminds me <laughs> a lot of my... Um, my chapter on the originality myth in my first book, and and may, maybe be the reason that I wrote that chapter. Who knows? <laughs> but we basically we it's called Radio Free Leader now, and our my sort of tagline that I'm inching my into because Radio Free is sort of a a veiled reference to the Cold War and Radio Free Europe, and so I look at it as we we are attempting to tear down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. You know, we want to give that evidence based intuition to to the leaders in the corner office who need it by sharing insights from social science on leadership, on innovation, on strategy, all of those um, levels. So that's Radio Free Leader, and it's, it's davidberkus.com slash podcast. I won't make you find out a new domain for it. It's all there on one site.
0: <laughs> great, and we'll put the links to all that information, in, as well as your Twitter and, and, and everything on our show notes for this episode. David Burkus, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for having me. All right, engagers. We'll provide the information and links that David mentioned on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com. While you're there, you can download a free sample of David's book, including the introduction and the entire first chapter. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, including talent management, workforce health engagement, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at espondalecommunications.com. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember... In the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers.